This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio Cars. Like most of you, I drive a car or a truck. Well, occasionally, I need tires or just a simple plug or patch. Well, my friends down at Just Tires is the place to go when that need arises. Give them a call at 727-585-9271. They have a convenient location right at 1645 Clearwater Largo Road. You can't miss them. So for all your tire needs, cars, trucks, trailers, new used or just a repair, give Just Tires a call. 727-585-9271. Oh, yeah, and be sure and check out their website, JustTires.net. Do you ever feel the need for speed? Well, experience the thrill of indoor karting at Tampa Bay Grand Prix, located at 12350 Automobile Boulevard in Clearwater. Call 727-527-8464. They have state-of-the-art electric carts racing around a quarter-mile road circuit. Bring your family, friends, and teammates for some speed, fun, and competition at Tampa Bay Grand Prix Indoor Karting Facility. Call 727-527-8464. Visit their website at tampabaygp.com. We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. can't tell our people they can vote yes on abolishing slavery unless at the same time we can tell them that you're seeking a negotiated peace. It's either the amendment or this confederate peace. You cannot have both. How many hundreds of thousands have died during your administration? Congress must never declare equal those whom God created unequal. Leave the Constitution alone. We are stepped out upon the world stage now with the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilled to afford us this moment now, now, now. Abraham Lincoln has asked us to work with him to accomplish the death of slavery. No one's ever been loved so much by the people. Don't waste that power. This fight is for the United States of America. Do we choose to be born, or we fit it to the times we're born into? Well, I don't know about myself. You may be. for all coming time, not only of the millions now in bondage, but of unborn millions to come. Shall we stop this bleeding? This is Brian Redmond, retired racing driver, nine times road racing champion, still racing at 76, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your host, Robert. Hey, Google Tantalk1340.com and you can see us live on the internet. I'm actually sitting here. And don't forget to, we have this new TuneIn app so you can download it and you can listen to us on your iPhone. Be sure and check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. Okay, we got some pretty cool stuff up there. Matter of fact, be sure and check our events page because there's a lot of stuff coming on here in the next month and a half. I mean, a ton of automotive events, okay? And we'll be talking about some of those here in a few minutes. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Oh, yeah, when you go to our website, be sure and check out the stuff page, okay? And we still have a few shirts left. I got some new ones on order. I got some brand new ones coming, too. Also, we have decals. At any rate, let me tell you a little bit about what we did this weekend. This was an amazing weekend. Like I told you before, we had so much stuff going on. To start with, on Friday evening, Friday afternoon, I went down to Boca Raton. I went to the Boca Raton Grand Concours event over the weekend. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. I started out Friday night at the uh, at the um, Boca Raton Aviation Facility there, and it was what they call a, I guess you would call a hangar party. And, I mean, there was some incredible food there. There was an incredible display of cars, vintage boats. Actually, not too much in the way of vintage stuff. There's actually new stuff. There was new Riva boats. 
There was helicopters. There was Gulf Streams. There was just a lot of big money stuff there. There was Lamborghinis. There was Ferraris. There was Porsches. Uh, just an amazing cast of people that were there. A lot of well-known people. I ran into Tom DuPont there. I ran into Wayne Carini there. Uh, a couple other people that I know. Uh, Keith Martin from Sports Car Market. Uh, he was there. And then a whole host of other people. Names you probably don't know, but just people I kind of know in the industry. So it was a lot of fun, okay? The next day, okay, this is a three-day event. Of course, on Saturday, what they do is they had an auction there. Bonhams had an auction at the Boca, Boca Raton Grand Resort. I'll get it here straight one of these days. And uh, so I wasn't able to go to the to the concourse or to the... Um, auction because simultaneously going on and if you recall last week our special guest was brian redmond legendary race car driver but he was putting on his event which is called the target 66 okay and what that is that's a three-day vintage racing event where people with all kinds of cars can show up and just go out and be able to run around on the racetrack now it was takes place at the palm beach international raceway which in the old days was morose actually started out in the 60s as palm beach international raceway and then when moroso acquired it was called moroso so to most people in Florida, it's pretty much uh, Moroso. And uh, now the new owners have changed the name back to its original name, which is Palm Beach International Raceway. But some of the cars that were there were just incredible. They had a couple of Formula One cars. They had a real live vintage one owner, 1962 Ferrari GTO, that was actually purpose-built for uh, John Surtees, the famous British racing car driver. It was right-hand driver, as a matter of fact. He raced that car for a number of years, and then uh, the car eventually wound up on the market. And the lady that owned the car was still driving the car. She owned it since 1967. So it was an original car, unmolested. The only thing they did is they took some of the racing stuff out of it and kind of made it somewhat streetable. Okay, So they put a quasi-interior in it, put a few extra gauges in it. But it was still right-hand drive. It had one paint job on it, nothing to brag about, and it was flaking. But it was an original Survivor unmolested car. Now, a car like that, it's hard to put a value on that because recently one sold here about, within the last year, I think the price tag was $35 million U.S. dollars. Now, but anyway, so it was a really cool piece, okay? So anyway, so what, uh, there was just a lot of cool cars. There was vintage Porsches, there was a 906 Porsche there, there was uh, vintage Jaguars, there was MGs, there was WSC cars, which are basically uh, some of the cars that raced uh, recently here in the last uh, 10 years or so. There was the winning Audi car that was there, the diesel, the TDI car was there. Um, there was small bore Elvas, there was Lotuses, there was Lolas. I mean, you name it, it was there. So it was an amazing event. Well, now my buddy Don, he races down there. He races with that group, okay? Now he has a Panos, okay? But his is one of the rare Panos that was actually prepared by Penske team. What some organizations do or some groups do, they put together, like they'll take 40, 50 cars or whatever, and they'll build these cars and they're all built alike. So they're kind of like spec racers. And then what they did is this these particular cars, which were purpose-built by Penske, as opposed to having Ford motors, and they put Chevrolet engines in it. Well, my friend Don has one of those things, okay? So he invited me to ride shotgun on the racetrack. Now, keep in mind, I haven't been on the racetrack in a number of years, okay? When I say a number of years, I haven't driven a race car probably since 2002, so, and I'm a little bit older now than I was back then. So that's 10 years. So when you're going from the 40s into your 50s, you're, you're not fit, you're not conditioned. And I'll tell you what, after this weekend, I have the utmost respect for drivers, okay? Um, you talk about, you know, baseball players and football players and basketball players and tennis players and golfers, you know, all being athletes and stuff like that. But here's the deal. When you're driving a race car, not only do you have to be fit because it's extremely hot in the cockpit of a car, but the moving around, the jarring around, the the the... The back and forth, the inertia, the G-forces, all that stuff, it is a lot of wear and tear on your body. Not to mention you're going at a high rate of speed, and you got to pay attention and focus on what you're doing, okay? Now, when you're a passenger, I have never really been a passenger in a race car, but I have a lot of empathy for people that are passengers in cars when you drive fast and you're on a curvy road, because the one thing you don't want to do is eat a big lunch, four cupcakes, and then get in a race car. Because you can just about fill your helmet up with the insides of your body. So uh, I didn't do that, but I was a little on the queasy side. So after about 40 minutes in a race car running around the racetrack there, um, I had to sit down for a little bit, So which was unusual. But at any rate, we had a lot of fun. So Don was out there running around. And the way the racetrack works is you got to take uh, basically three to four session, 20-minute sessions a day and run your car around the track. And they broke us up basically into three groups. So you had fast, faster, fastest, or good, better best in terms of drivers but everybody had a great time nobody had any problems there was no injuries no mishaps everything was went really 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 good so people had a lot of respect and a lot of you know discipline on the track that was very very important but i, I want to say special thanks to martin steiger martin steiger okay because he's german and kevin buckley of the racers group okay now they were there and they were demoing their their 
very well and very prolific in the GT, ALMS, and uh, Grand Am racing series with Porsches, okay? Uh, they won a number of times, and they've got a ton of trophies to their uh, um, victories and stuff. But at any rate, they were, they've, they're involved with Aston Martin now. Now, Aston Martin is coming up with a spec series. You know, you're probably familiar with the Cup series, with Porsche has, Ferrari has, Ferrari Challenge cars. Well, now Aston Martin's going to do this. And they had three Aston Martins there on display. Two were running around on the track. The one car, okay, the GT car, was kind of like a flat black color and had 007 on it. Well, I was standing there and I was talking to the guys and somehow the conversation kind of went like, well, do you want to go for a ride? And I said, yeah, sure. Now, Don's Panos is extremely fast. It's 400 and some odd horsepower and he goes around the track pretty quick. This Aston Martin was a full-blown, serious six 700 horsepower car. Well, I had put on a full racing suit, helmet, the whole nine yards, strapped that in that little guy. And off we went. And I'll tell you what, I have a lot of respect for racing car drivers now because this was a total pro car. And the way we went around that track, and as quickly as we went around the track, we ran four laps or five laps, I think is what it was. It was, it was, it was incredible. I mean, you could seriously feel the, the forces in this car. And then what happened is actually when we were coming around the infield, or not the infield, but we went around the beginning part of the course, and then what we did is we went around the, some of the S's in the back part of the, the racetrack, and we went down the long straightaway. So he was probably, now Don's car was probably up around 150, the Aston Martin was closer to 175. You have a braking distance, and now your braking distance before your turns are usually marked in cones, 300, 200, 100, okay? So Don would break, let's say, like at the 300, which is where most guys break, you know, because you're casually, recreationally driving, Okay. So what happened was, is they asked the Martin was breaking it between 200 and 100 and then downshifting. It's a paddle shifter, automatic six or seven speed, whatever it was. And it's like, nya, 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 nya. and I'll tell you what, when he hit the binders, they grabbed so tight. I thought I was coming out of my suit. I mean, my head just went, Phew! the second time I came around the track, third, fourth, fifth time, I was prepared for it. But let me tell you something. That was a lot of fun. Sunday, they were still out there racing, but what I did is I took off to uh, down to the Boca Resort and Spa, and what was going on there was a amazing concourse event was taking place there. Um, there were some incredible cars. There was Delahays, there was Delages, Rolls Royces, Duesenbergs, Auburns, Cords, all the great American pre-war classics, the majestic automobiles, unbelievable American iron. And by the fact, there was a couple people there from this area, the Tampa Bay Automobile Museum and I can't pronounce his last name properly, but I'll just say his first name, Surf. He had a number of his cars down there, and they won a number of awards. But you had Cadillacs, you had Shelby's. There were Stutzes, Packards. There's names there I can't even pronounce. Just, all I can say is just incredible, incredible, powerful American and foreign cars. You had Jaguars, you had Haley's, Ferraris, you had vintage Lincolns. Matter of fact, one Lincoln that was there was one of three, one of three Mark II convertibles, okay? There's a long story, you can go online... I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but that car was an amazing car. Um, I've never seen one before. I've seen them in pictures, but this gave me the first opportunity to see that. One of the cars that I recently appraised was the very first 1957 Eldorado Barretts. That car was there. It also won an award. A friend of ours by the name of Steve Wolf, who actually won an award. He won the Iacocca Award. So this is an award that they give out every year to someone that contributes very, very heavily dedicated automotive enthusiast and Steve Wolf won that award. And I believe he had a, a won the award with, uh, he had a number of entries. Um, but I think one of the cars was either V12 or V16 uh, Cadillac, okay, like a mid-early uh, 30s car. But there was just incredible stuff, and I urge everybody to check out these events. If you're really a car enthusiast, and this is how eclectic this was, you go from the racetrack where you've got race cars, you've got vintage race cars, modern-day race cars, current race cars, street cars that are turned loose on the track, and then you go over here to this concourse, and then you have... The most amazing pre-war classics. I'm talking Amelia Island, Pebble Beach quality cars. The Boca Raton Concourse d'Elegance was a stunning, memorable event, and I can't wait to look forward to that event next year. Billy, what do we got on the turntable? We'll play just a little bit of it, and then we'll go to a commercial. And uh, be sure and check out our events calendars because we got the St. Pete Grand Prix coming up. We've got the uh, Festivals of Speed coming up. We've got Amelia Island coming up at the uh, Amelia Island Concourse. We've got RM Auction. We've got the Gooding Auction. There is so much going on. The 12 Hours of Sebring. HS- oh, yeah, the best news is HSR, the Vintage Racing Association, guess what? They are going to be participating in the St. Pete Grand Prix, so you get to see some vintage cars. Matter of fact, when the St. Pete Grand Prix first started back in the mid-'80s, they had a vintage race that took place there. It was for the first couple of years. Then they did away with it. Then the race ceased to exist. Then they brought it back. And then they had other stuff. But this time, we're going to have a vintage race again. So I believe it's going to be Saturday and Sunday, testing us on Friday. So we're really looking forward to that. And, of course, my friend, our own local boy here, Don, will be racing his panos there. So there'll be some cool cars. Anyway, we'll be back in a minute. 
Don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Hey Jude, don't be afraid. You were made to go out and get her. The minute you let her under your skin, then you Hi, this is Bob Varsha with Speed. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72, plus another 9-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Yeah. <laughs> 
Not bad. You had to do this for a living. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Smoked your ass. You had a good teacher, didn't you? Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, now it is time to introduce our special guest for the evening. He's a renowned motorsports journalist. He is probably one of the best-known racing legends in the United States, and guess what? He actually had a small cameo part in that actual movie, Heart Like a Wheel, about Shirley Muldown. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show this evening, Sam Posey. Sam, are you there? I sure am, and uh, Bonnie Bedelia played Shirley in the movie, and she was terrific. Just exactly like Shirley, who I'd gotten to know and got to count as a friend. Well, that's good. So how long did it take them to, to actually do that movie, and how long were you on the set? I was on the set one day. I don't know how long the whole thing took. <laughs> a couple, couple of weeks, I think. Oh, wow. Anyway, well, at least you got a cameo part in it. did pretty good there. Was, was it only at the end, or were you in an earlier scene, too, as well? No, that... it was only at the end. And actually, I was playing Chris Economaki. <laughs> oh, you were? Couldn't make it there. Oh, so how you been? I've been excellent, thank you. I've been doing a lot of painting over the winter. I have models that come in and pose for me, and I've been doing a lot of figure painting. And I'm having a show in early May, and I'm just so excited about it, I can hardly uh, express it. Well, you know, that's the other side of you that people probably don't know, and the fact is is that not only you are were you a fantastic race car driver, but you're a very good artist, as well as you're an architect as well, right? That's right. I've always had this sort of second life uh, away from the track, uh, but it's uh, to me, it all merges together. It's a question of control and controlling forces and so forth. And it seems that you do that in the car, but you also do it with color and line and paintings and with structure in, uh, in buildings. So I don't find that my mind really shifts gears particularly between these three things. When you design stuff, um, do you have a preference? Let's say let's let's talk about architecture a little bit in construction because a lot of our listeners absolutely happen to be in the construction and building field, and uh, so. Your, what type of architecture do you kind of prefer, and are there who would have been some of the architects of the past that would have been inspirational to you? Listen, I admire so many architects, I wouldn't really know where to start. I know Frank Lloyd Wright was the starting point for me. I think mm-hmm. he's one of the most accessible architects, but I love Charles Moore and Robert Venturi and, you know, way back to Edward Lutyens, and uh, there's so many. I have a, a library of books, and... Um, uh, there are three or four hundred books in there, and I, I love them all. Now, you live on the west coast of Florida part-time, part of the year, don't you? That's where we're headed in a couple of weeks, yeah, Boca Grande. Okay, and from what I was reading, you uh, designed and built your home down there as well. Yeah, yeah, I've done a lot of single-family houses, about 40 or 50, uh, a school, um, uh, uh, a uh, grocery store, a supermarket, and all the buildings at the Lime Rock track. Oh, really? Well, how do you get your work? I mean, do you actually have a a firm, I mean, an office where you go out and you uh, solicit business, or people just get to you word of mouth, or how do you get most of business? They just get to me word of mouth. I started by building three spec houses, uh, obviously, to my designs in the area, and they got my name uh, associated with good design, and I was on my way. I never had more than two or three projects at any given moment, so I never... I didn't want to have a, a, an actual uh, studio with people coming and going. I, I kept it small. Mm-hmm. Now, you also have an art studio someplace, too, right? Yeah, right close to the house. Okay. Now, you're in Sharon, Connecticut, correct? Yes, very rural. Cows and hills and fields and beautiful streams, and it's just a heavenly place. Just out of curiosity, did you know Rick Kopeck? Of course. Okay. Everybody knows Rick Kopech. <laughs> okay, yeah, because he's uh, in charge of uh, SAC, Shelby American. Yeah, so. he just put out his annual. Um, I have a copy of it right here, as a matter of fact. It's uh, wonderful. He's okay. terrific. He's a great guy. Um, 
Model railroading. That's another. As a matter of fact, you wrote three books. There's uh, the one book is called Playing with Trains. There's another yep. one that's Mudge Pond Road Express. Yes. Mudge, okay. And then there's one called uh, Paintings and Drawings, 1959 to 2012. Is that did I read that right? Yep. Yep. And then there's an architecture book as well. Now those two last ones that you spoke of, mm-hmm. those are sort of Vanity Press. I just made it fifty copies for friends and so forth. But the uh, the train book and the, my first racing autobiography uh, have both been actually quite big sellers. I'm proud to say the train book has sold over thirty thousand copies. Now you you, uh, you know we t- I mentioned earlier that you know you you uh, you're a renowned motorsports journalist. How did the motorsports journalism thing kind of all come about? If I was reading correctly, it was something to do with you had to fill in for somebody, and then it just kind of escalated from there. Is that the way it worked? Well, not not exactly. What happened was I got um, uh, the uh, Dodge Drive in the Challenger in the 1970 Trans Am series, and I was concerned that I wasn't going to get enough publicity because I didn't think we were going to win the races, and I was right. We didn't win the races. So I knew a guy called Lyle Kenyon Engel, who was a publisher, and I called him and asked him if I could write an article about each of the races, a first-person article. He agreed and said I could write any length I wanted. So I wrote these four and five and six thousand word tomes about these races and got a lot of publicity for the team because naturally I keyed them all around me. (laughs) And that's how I started. I enjoyed the writing and it wasn't long after that that I wrote my autobiography. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Now you started racing in the late 50s, correct? No, it was later than that, 65. Oh, 65, I'm sorry. Uh, oh no! You started driving. I'm not that old. Well, no, 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 no. Well, I guess what I should say is you started driving in the late fifties. Oh then yeah, absolutely. You, you, I started driving when I was four years old, sitting on my mother's lap. Okay. And then he just, says I steered like mad, but never looked where I was going. Oh, okay. the story of my life. <laughs> you know, it's funny because you had an amazing career. It just seems like sometimes. The, your equipment failed on you, and and I guess that's you know there's a lot of race car drivers out out there that shared the same kind of experience. They were very very good drivers, and it wasn't until they got really really good equipment that they could really show their talents. Is that would that be a fair statement? That's uh, absolutely right. Yeah. The the thing is, in my era, fifty percent of the cars didn't finish the races, so. Your, your breakdown factor was a big one in the way your season developed. And if you were unlucky and you broke down at the wrong time, you know, it could really hurt you in a championship. If you were breaking down at some time that the other contenders were, then it wasn't so bad. But there, you were never sure of finishing a race. Today, the cars are far more reliable and much safer. It's quite a different sport, actually, today. Um, which brings the my next question. If you... If you could race today, would you race today? And if you had to compare it to back in the old days, give us kind of like a uh, like a, a a comparison. Well, if, I from would your love to be racing today, uh, particularly in Formula One, which I have the privilege of following uh, for, through Speed for the last fifteen years, and now NBC has taken up the rights, and I'm involved with that team as well. So. And I notice you used David Hobbs's voice early in this broadcast, and mm-hmm. he's talking about um, working for Speed. That's now out of date. He's working for NBC. I know he's going to do a fabulous job. But anyway, I'd love to be in Formula One. It plays to my strengths. Qualifying is so critical, and uh, I think I'd be very. I think I'd be pretty good at it. The cars and the because of the technology and everything like that. Do you? Do you, do you think that the drivers are missing something today compared to you guys as drivers back then? In other words, you, it seemed like you have more of an interaction with the car, have a fundamental background of how the car functions. Um, I would say maybe more driver feedback compared to the drivers today where everything is just technology, it's data, it's downloaded, and the drivers are just basically a personality. Would that be a fair statement? I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that today's driver is, if anything... More technically equipped and is feeling more what's going on in the car. Consider the uh, the need to baby the tires is just a certain way. Get the most out of those. I think the drivers today are extremely sensitive to what they're doing and what's going on in the car, or they're not going to run up front. The drivers, like when you were growing up, 
Um, and you know, because you, in my opinion, the late fifties, sixties, seventies would probably be the most. And I guess I'm maybe I'm partial because I'm old school, but it seems to me that the cars are more innovative than. I mean, today I think they're more technolo- technologically advanced, but back then it seems like there was more innovation um, in the cars. Would would you say that there's some truth? Oh to that? yeah, I agree with you absolutely. I love the way that. You see big changes in the cars, the monocoque design, and then the the wings and the ground effect and all this. Every year there was something new to get excited about the active suspension. Now the things are virtually the same. If you painted all of these cars the same color and lined them up outside in the pit lane, nobody, even the guys that work on them, probably could tell the difference until they got really close up. I think that's a shame, and I think that a lot of the design energy and um, research and expense goes into um, the most obscure details that no fan or anything is ever going to understand or be able to see. The mindset of the drivers today versus the mindset of the drivers when you were driving, what do you think? Well, today there's a lot more money in the sport, Um and things move more slowly because nobody gets killed. In my day, you know, a rides opened up regularly and there was a volatility to the scene that doesn't exist now. Now you have to plan two, three, four, five years ahead uh, for in your career and align yourself with an engine manufacturer and do all this kind of stuff. It's a real business, and these guys work their ass off at it. When you look back in your career, some of the races and some of the drivers... Tell us about some of the drivers that you really like co-driving with. Well, I was extremely lucky to have great co-drivers. Uh, Michael Parks, who um, was just a, um, a legend in England, a great driver, drove with me at Daytona. We won the prototype class. Tony Adamowitz, who races in vintage car racing now, was a wonderful uh, companion and a co-driver for Le Mans, Ronnie, Ronnie Bucknam, who sadly is dead now. Was a great co-driver. I really uh, drove with Peter Revson, and I just I, a lot of my success was due to the great drivers uh, that I shared the car with. How much interaction was there between drivers? In other words, did you? Uh, let, I, I would assume if you were a team driver, you always pointed out certain things uh, on the track that might be concerns. Okay, whereas and from a competitor's position, if you were in competitive cars, you probably would, but. But then sometimes the drivers from one team or com- competing teams would then be sharing the same cockpit, the same race, and the same car, correct? No, 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 not from a competing team. No, um, no, no, from a previous team. You might have, a, like Pedro Rodriguez might have raced against you in a previous race, but now he's your co-driver in this next race. Uh, oh, next yes, oh, absolutely, right. yeah, that happened all the time. And so then after a while, would it be fair to say that you would pick up techniques and little bit tidbits uh, that would, uh, you know, you would share driving let's just say stories that kind of would just uh, help you kind of get out a little bit on you know while you're while you're racing together you know there wasn't much of that really really you just uh, kind of kept to yourself and there's very little you can tell another driver about what's what to do in a car very little i mean you might exchange uh, what, what gear do you take a certain turn in but it's very limited i mean the drivers at that level that i was at uh know what they're doing, and um, there's really nothing you can teach them, per se. Some of the races that you were in in the United States, uh, tell us about some one or two of the races that you, if you had to do it all over again, what would have you done differently? Well, I'll tell you, I would definitely include Indy in my um, resume. I, that, that day that I finished fifth there was one of the greatest of my life, and I think everybody should participate in the Indianapolis 500 if they have the skill and the opportunity. But my favorite races were the road races, and specifically Watkins Glen, when I raced in the Formula One race there, and it fulfilled my life dream at that point to be in Formula One. That was fantastic. And then I always loved racing at my home track here at Lime Rock, where I had a lot of success. I knew the track a little better than the next guy, and I had some luck here, and everybody was always rooting for me, and it was a, it was a wonderful experience to drive here. But, I mean, that said, there were tracks, Riverside, tracks in Europe and uh, Asia and so that I just loved, and uh, I, I loved it all, you know. I mean, people ask me what my favorite track was, and the answer is the one I'm at right now. 
Okay. Well, that's uh, that's kind of like what people say when when I ask collectors, which is your favorite car, and they say I love them all. So you yeah. Know. And and one of the things that was that's notable and interesting about you, and tell me how other if if this was common, you were able to get out of a open wheel car, get in a GT car, get in a Can Am car, get into a sports car, and you always did very well. Is that is that something that's kind of unique to some drivers? In other words, some drivers can do that. I know Parnelli Jones was like that. Dan Gurney was like that. But there were some drivers that would just only work well in certain types of cars. So how much truth is there to that? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I felt I always had a source of pride that uh, I shared with Dan and Parnelli, that characteristic of being able to jump in any car. I mean, I by the time I had cleared the end of the pit lane, I knew how the car was going to handle. I just had an instinct for that that very few people have, and I was always very pleased with myself about it, to be honest. How much testing did you get to do um, back in those days and, and with various cars, and did you have a lot of say-so in what you drove? Well, I did it first because I was buying my own cars and running them. Okay. <laughs> but then I got to the point where people were hiring me, and I basically went where I was hired. I mean, that was pretty simple. Um, we did a fair amount of testing in those days. Um, I did quite a lot for Goodyear tires uh, at one point. I tested for Dan Gurney and his Formula 5000 car for a while. We got in quite a bit. The cars that you raced, for example, you had the great fortune to drive 917s, drove Lolas. Uh, I think at one point, I think, didn't you drive GT40 at one point in time, too? No, I didn't, and okay. I always wanted to. In my career blossomed just as Ford was getting out of it, and I would love to have been a part of one of those teams in those days. I think the GT40 is one of the most beautiful cars. I've always wondered what it would be like to drive it. I've never even driven it in a vintage car race. Really? Oh, that's amazing. And then, of course, this year, I think it's the uh, 50th anniversary of the Ford GT, and will be featured at Amelia Island, and you are the guest of honor at Amelia Island this year. Yep, yep. I'm very excited about it. I, I don't know why. They seem to have gotten pretty far down on the list from Parnelli Jones and Dan Gurney to get to me, but I'm very pleased about it and, and excited. I believe they're going to have the Ferrari 512 that I drove to third place at Le Mans there, and the Dodge Challenger, um, the BMW I won Sebring with. So there are going to be some wonderful cars to uh, have a kind of a reunion with. When you now that's that's interesting. Now, let's talk about the mid the early seventies. So right about the time you're driving Can Am nine seventeen Porsches, you're jumping into sports cars, and then the BMW CSL, which was what seventy four seventy five when you raced that seventy five. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, just completely different cars. I mean, does does your mind shift gears when you have to make that transition from something as powerful and as amazing and almost lethal as a, as a 917 Can-Am car, and then you jump into, let's say, like a, uh, a really run-of-the-mill sports car. There's no difference. There's no difference. There's no difference at all. You're driving a car, and you're trying to get the most out of it. And if you're, you're driving a slow car, you're getting the most out of a slow car. If you're driving a fast car, you're getting the most out of a fast car. And there's just really no difference at all. That's interesting, because, uh, you know... I was I was telling I mentioned earlier on the show that I had an opportunity this weekend to go to the Targa 66 and and I rode around my friends panos for a while and then I got to get in the Aston Martin uh the GT car um and huge difference in performance huge difference in in uh you know grip you know car just stuck Oh to the listen grip. I agree as a spectator as a passenger the experience is very very different but as a driver you're so preoccupied getting the most out of every moment that it really doesn't matter what that moment is about. And, and, well, I was kind of trying to figure that out a little bit, you know, because as I'm riding, being a driver myself, when I'm in the passenger seat, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think like the driver. Where would my line be? Where would I, you know, accelerate? Where would I decelerate? Where would I brake? And so on. But I also have to take in consideration the car and the capabilities of the car. And that's why I was trying to ask. So if you're going from a 917, it has unbelievable stopping ability and acceleration, and then you jump into the CSL. Is it kind of a relative term, then? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it is. I mean, you're still braking, and the minute you're in the 917, you feel where the brakes are going to take you, so to speak, and you adjust accordingly. As for being a passenger, I hate being a passenger, and I would... I would be wondering when the guy was going to put the brakes on and not worry about much else. <laughs> okay. 
you you have a courage if you went out with somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, I, it's a passion too. But uh, all right, let's go back to uh, some of the races here in the United States. Which of the races besides Walking Glen? And obviously your home track of uh, Lime Rock. What are the tracks in the United States that you really enjoy? How was Daytona and how was Sebring for you? Daytona was not so good. The the, the amount of banking and the um, where you just kind of hung on for dear life, it wasn't really a question of driving skill, per se. And then the infield, which was so Mickey Mouse, and the, the constant lapping um, around this very tight, small area of geography. I loved Le Mans, which is eight miles through the countryside. And I loved Riverside, which sort of took you down to the kind of where the mountains were and brought you back. I loved Riverside. I like the bigger courses. So something with topography is more of a, more, uh, what should I say? How should I say this? Um, more it's rewarding more for the driving to drive okay. by far. Okay. You, you get the compression at the bottom of an uphill. You get compression again at the bottom of a downhill you get the the combination of lateral g's and lightning the car lightening up as it goes over a hill crest it's just far more satisfying to drive a, a course that has some ups and downs in it and the bigger the ups and downs the better as far as i'm concerned i love the new track at austin for that first wonderful ascent up to the left hand hairpin at the top of the hill i think that's just spectacular now, that race, were you there when they did the first Indy race there? Or, see, what race was it last? last Formula One. Formula One. Formula One. Were you there for that event? Nope. I wish I had been. And now, all right, let's, let's talk about um, Watkins Glen, and let's just compare Watkins Glen. How about Road America? That's you know, a good comparison. Road America is a beautiful location and, uh, in many ways, one of the most spectacular tracks. But Cliff Tufte, who designed it and owned it, was a was a, a contractor, a pavement contractor, and he went out and surveyed corners that he liked, and then collaged them together, into and made the track. The turns were too tight; they were like intersections on public roads around the area, and so it was quite a few years before he eased those turns up. The track is still a little bit too much on the straightaway side. And you never get in a rhythm taking the turns. I much prefer Road Atlanta or Riverside, where there the are turns are more turns per mile. Okay. Um, speaking of Road Atlanta, since they redesigned Road Atlanta, do you like that track now? You know, I haven't been there since they redesigned it, so I have no opinion. Okay. Well, I was just curious whether you watched any races on there or not. But I know that you know in the old days, you know, when you got to turn ten, there was a dip. It came up turn eleven, and they had to set up for turn twelve coming down the hill. And uh, yeah, it was pretty busy stuff. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, let's see. What other track has a lot of trouble? Mid Ohio. I've never been to Mid Ohio. What's that track like? Oh, I was so lucky at Mid Ohio. Um, I never thought much of the track. It takes the Elkhart leg idea of being open and does a one eighty with it. And that's Mid Ohio is the tightest, twistiest, nastiest little place you'll ever go. But for some reason, I kept having luck there um and so i guess i like it okay so of the tracks in the united states that you competed on which were the ones that were your to your liking and besides mid-ohio you know in terms of success for you well you mentioned sebring and i forgot to address that i've always thought that that the original course at sebring 5.2 miles to the lap was unique you know out on the runways the heat of the day the derelict uh, airplanes and hangars and uh-huh. great atmosphere, and uh, then the night coming on there and the barbecues, the smell of the smoke wafting across the track, the sunset uh, just at the hairpin. You come into the hairpin, the sun is setting dead ahead of you. It's a terrific place to race, and uh, I've always brought out the most epic qualities of what racing can be about. Um, and I, I love Sebring, and uh, they've changed it, but. I think it's still pretty good. You could actually smell the fires and the barbecues and stuff like that when you're racing down the track down oh, in Oh, yeah, Sebring? yeah, because really? you, you don't have any open. The windows are always open. Okay, interesting. Turn smell tw- that at Le Mans, too, by the way. Really? Interesting. Okay, the carousel at Sebring. What, uh, you know, it's always been kind of choppy. When you were racing back then, did, you, did, you, did your car skip a lot when you were coming around that turn? I don't know what you mean by the carousel. Uh, it's the last turn, turn 12. I guess it's Sebring. Turn Sebring, right? Mm-hmm. The last turn is turn 
17. Or turn 17, I'm sorry. Yeah, turn 17, which is the before you get to pit row, and you run the straightaway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great turn. Uh, The radius opens up on it. Mm -hmm. You actually get three cars abreast. It's bumpy as all get out and fast. I really like that turn. Very satisfying. But the next two turns, the ones that are start the lap, are very, very fast, and they are the real test of nerve, I'll tell you. How about turn one at Sebring? That's the one I mean. That one and turn two, those are sort of coupled together. And then three is that right angle left that takes mm-hmm. you back toward the MG Bridge. But uh, those first two turns you take in fifth gear in a, in a CSL at about, oh, 175. When you came around turn one, did you hug the wall or did you take it kind of wide? Because one of the concerns that I've always had racing there is if somebody got out of shape because you can't see around that corner. Well, you can't. No, you can't. one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) That's true of a lot of places in racing, and uh, you just hope there isn't a guy in the wrong place. I had that happen at Riverside. I lost my brakes coming into six, turn six and uh, crested the hill, spinning the car, trying to keep it away from the crowd, and there was a car stalled right in my path, and I plowed into it going backwards, and it was a holocaust, and the other driver was badly burned, a tragedy, and I'll never forget seeing that car in my path and not being able to do anything about it. I was reading at, uh, it was at Le Mans, and I guess, I'm not sure what year it was, but you were, as the story goes, you're driving down the road, and all you could see was like a pink light, and you did yeah. in a fog, and it got so bad that you actually stopped the car. Tell us what happened then. Well, Ed Lamont in those days had um, a lot of fog in the early mornings, and a guy had a crash in the fog bank, and it just lit it up like candy. And I thought, oh, I've got to see, I mean, if I can help. So I parked uh, off the road and began to look for this guy, and the course workers on the far side of the road motioned me, okay, okay, get on, get going. And so I assumed they had it under control and got back in the car and resumed racing. But you were, and then there was a part there where I read that you really couldn't see more than two car lengths in front of you, but you, it was either like a do-or-die situation, you either got to run or you're chicken, so to speak, right? So you just basically... Yeah, yeah, and then, of course, you're afraid that if you are bold and somebody else is a chicken, that you're going to run right into the back of him. Okay. It's going to be bad for both of you. Well, it was terrible with fog. Now, what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is that the whole area has grown up, and you don't have these kind of uh, fields and swamps that produce the fog. Now there are parking lots and everything, and the contemporary drivers... Don't know what you're talking about when you talk about fog. Interesting. Tell us about some of the tracks in Europe that you liked. You know that were obviously you loved the Le Mans. Le Mans is the one that probably most race car drivers aspire to if you're a sports car driver, correct? You know, everybody wants to do Le Mans. I think it's a it, it's such an epic event and such a singular one. It's it's like Indy and, and Monaco and Formula One. They're the signature events of that type of racing. And you want to do them if you can do them. What are some of the other tracks that you raced in Europe? You... Well, I raced at Vallelunga down in uh, the northern part of Italy. I thought that was a wonderful track. Um, and uh, the Nürburgring, of course, is absolutely fantastic. Um, I don't know. I, I love, uh, in South America, I love the track at Buenos Aires, and I did the Tasman series and loved Invercargill there in the southern part of New Zealand and uh, I love the track at Fuji and um, Japan, and you know, I just I got around to a lot of these places and loved them all. But most of my racing was in the in the states. Okay, when you went to these foreign countries, what? Uh, d- tell us a little bit about the fans. Were the, let's say you went to South America, the race car fans there. How how oh, did they? Res- you put your finger on it. They're insane. Uh, in, in the Buenos Aires race. There were 60 people camped outside my room at the hotel waiting for me to come out so they could get autographs. They'd been up all night in the hallway of the hotel. Imagine that in the state. Wow. And what were you racing? A Ferrari. A Ferrari. Okay. Now, did they, the association between you and the cars, uh, was it you or the cars? What was it that, uh, that, that got the people so, uh, you know, invigorated? I don't know. I, I really, I, don't speak the language, and I'm not sure what okay. got them so turned on. I just think that racing is a big, big deal down there, and 
I was one of the top guys with a chance to win, and the Ferrari didn't hurt, you know, because it's so famous a car. And um, I think they um, there was a picture of it on the cover of the program, and I signed a lot of those. I know that. What year was this? Oof, 70, 70, I think. Japan. How were the, the fans in Japan towards you? Well, they were in 68, um, and um, it was an amazing race. I, I was very ill before the race, and um, they gave me some injection of something or other, and I got well enough to sit in the car the morning of the warm-up, but I hadn't been around the track. So I started the back of the pack, and um, within a lap or two, uh, a car in front of me threw a rock up and broke the little bit, bit of a windshield that the car had. It wasn't much, but it did keep the wind out of your face. And so I just kind of staggered around, and suddenly I'm running fourth, and then I'm running third. <laughs> and the duel between Revson and Donahue ends when Donahue runs out of gas, stops in the pits, and they pour gas down the back of his driving suit by mistake when they think they're refueling the car. Oh, so he has to leap out and wriggle around on the. He he wound up stripping off all of his clothes to try to get his body into into the grass somehow, and it was on live color television in uh, in Japan. He became quite famous overnight. Interesting. Well, Sam, so we're I just, finished second. You finished second. Incredible. Well, that's good. You had a good turnout then. Yeah. And you were driving what the Ferrari again? No, I had the uh, Lola T one sixty. Oh, that's a beautiful car. Oh, it's a wonderful car. Much underrated, by the way. People don't seem to think it's that good of a Lola, and I thought it was wonderful. I did great things with that. I almost finished second at Stardust, finished fifth, but uh, ran right at the front of the whole way. Well, you had an amazing career. Sam, I want to take uh, a few minutes here and say thank you for coming on the radio show, and you will be at Amelia Island in two weeks. You're the guest of honor at Amelia, and I'm sure you have a speech prepared for everybody there, right? Well, there is something in the works, yes. It's not two weeks away, though. It's just, uh, it, well, it's, it's That's coming next, up uh, yeah, a week weekend. from tomorrow it starts, and uh, a week from this Sunday is the climax. Okay. I want to thank my special guest this evening, which is Sam Posey, renowned motorsports journalist, racing legend. He will be appearing, I shouldn't say appearing, you will be the guest of honor at Amelia Island next weekend. So everybody, you've always heard me talk about Amelia Island, so I want to see everybody there next weekend, okay? We may have some special tickets, I'm not sure, but if I do get them, I will announce it on the show. Meanwhile, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, love your family, be sure and check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com, tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars next week, 7 o'clock, we'll have another special guest, and I hope to see some of you guys at some of these events. Take care, everybody. Bring on food to the other side. Bring on new hours.